Hey everybody, welcome to episode 74 of Literary Disco, my dad, the pornographer. Today we'll be discussing a recent essay by author Chris Offit that appeared in the New York Times Magazine, all about his father who made a living writing pornographic fiction. We'll also talk about two short stories by Chris Offit, Blue Lick and The Leaving One, from his premier short story collection, Kentucky Straight. But first up, we'll begin with a rush, Russian roulette. <laughs> yeah, we should start off with a Russian roulette. <laughs> We're going to shoot ourselves in the head. So, Which one of your Rios will die today? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. We are not going to be reenacting Deer Hunter. It's We're going to a- be doing a bookshelf roulette. Bookshelf roulette. It's been a it's long been week, guys. It's been a really actually. long <laughs> week, people. It's been a dark winter. For us all. But for, not for much right. longer. <laughs> I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as you've already heard, our essayist and radio personality, Julia Pistel, and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hi, guys. Hello. Oh, man. A... I fear for my life all of a sudden. <laughs> well, you, you know what, Julia? I did one of those um, poetry tweets where it turns our Twitter into a poetry, into a, a line of poetry, and the poem that it cr- that created about you was called Julia Failed. So we, I know. the poetry universe has selected It was you. actually, it was really, really funny. Can we, can you pull it up really quick? Yes, I think I this, this really, the whole thing I have no idea really what it is. What are, you, what are you guys talking about? There's a, uh, there's some little program that um, you type in your twitter address and it um turns your tweets into poetry so i on my own personal account um i had some really great poetry i'll read you a sample of it in just a moment but let's let's read julia failed um which i think is it's probably equal to um you know some bad undergraduate poetry that (laughs) is out there Mm-hmm. Um, hold on one moment, please. And so it took it. the literary disco tweets and turned it and into a poem. Pe- okay. Yeah, here we it. go. <clears throat> Julia failed by literary disco. Shock you with its revelations, and we spy Whitey Bulger. Photos of our server's buttons discuss Albert Camus, the stranger. Favorite things: sneaky Steve boots, lack of cats lounging in shelves. Ten pounds of cotton candy Dippin' Dots. Town's Earl, if memory serves. Oh my god. Colin Firth in your ears, Todd. That would be a nice convenience. (laughs) Julia, Ryder, and Todd. Ryder interviews Neil LeBute with Todd's brother for shame. Things. It can take a minute. That's Julia Failed by Literary That's great. It can take a minute. I love that. Let's (laughs) give it some snaps. Yeah, that was... uh, nice. I think Colin Firth in your ear, that would be a nice convenience, is incredible. That's just so good. When the hell did we bring up Colin Firth? Uh, someone had asked us for a audiobook recommendation, and I recommended uh, Colin Firth reading The End of the Affair. Oh, right. So Colin Firth in your ear. Gotcha. Yeah. So let me, uh, hold on, let me, let me read what I think was the, um, the best poem of, uh, of my work. It's a poem called She Dies by Todd Goldberg. She killed my father was the best thing I'd ever heard. (laughs) Book doesn't look too bad either. Running for my HOA board. Bradbury, is your fridge running? I'm glad it was good for class. I'm moving, I tell you, I'm moving. Sort of sucked 
too much bass. Like an airborne toxic event, as an atheist, it's problematic. <laughs> Play ever long and I'd be content, then never mind, it was a dark time. Thank you, thank you, thank you fans. A Christmas album, it's sublime. Wow. Yeah. So this is poettweet.com that you're using? Yes, that's correct. So what kind of what kind of poem I'm I'm trying to try and do it right now. What what did you choose a sonnet or a rondelle or an I, I I spent about well cuz I had something due for my writing. So uh -huh. I spent like 4 hours trying all the versions. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I I'm sure writers would be really good because well, his tweets mine, are so sarcastic. Well, but mine are always quoting other people, so it'll right. probably be confusing. Yeah. Comics and by Ryder Strong. Also guest stars on Kim Possible. No one ever realized this before. Me feel old and uncomfortable. Episode? <laughs> Interviews with and more. You must look like Ryder Strong. His talents as an actor slash host slash singer head to. Definitely been too long. General misery of being a teenager. But you will like him, we promise. A genuine James Joyce scholar. R. Talent doesn't compromise. Sometime. Are you at Tunnel Post? Robbed a liquor store, prison, by my friend and co-host. <laughs> wow. Weird. What's that? I, it kind of, mine sort of ended up like an E.E. E. Cummings yeah. poem. It has this weird, like... <laughs> oh, wow. I still like yeah. Julia Failed. Uh, Julia Failed is, is yeah. wonderful, wonderful work. Because it, it says a lot while also saying nothing. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. a, it's like me on this show. Alright, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, so uh, are you guys ready for our bookshelf roulette? Okay. I feel like we haven't done this in a while, so no. I'm going to re-explain the rules. Again. Uh, so, basically, if you are new to the podcast, welcome and go back and listen to some of our other episodes. And also, what we're going to do now is we're going to almost randomly select a book off our shelves and discuss why it is in our homes and what we were thinking when we bought it or read it uh, or wrote it in the case of Todd. Uh, so... <laughs> What we need is... I very rarely pull down my own books in this situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you probably... Oh, here's a great one. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, what, we, what we do is we start with which corner of the bookshelf. So that's a number from one to four. And then we either count up or down the shelves. That's a number from one to six. And then we count over a certain number of books. And all of those numbers are given to us by you guys. So are you guys ready for our numbers? Yes, Yes. All right. Our number is four, so the bottom left corner. Mm -hmm. And that okay. comes from at Andersmoke. So thank you. And then we are going to count up five shelves from Sarah. And then we are going to count over 39 books if you have a shelf Whoa. that long. Okay? Okay. If not, just take right. the last one. So four, right. five, 39. All right. One, two, three, go! We are back. We're all back. Okay. I got a good one. You guys have good ones? Yes. All right. Who wants to yeah, go first? I think I have an okay one. I am happy to go first. Do it. Go for it. Uh, I, so I did not have a shelf with 39 books on it, so I had to... You don't need to know. I found a book. I went up and then over another five. Um, you cheated. And I... Well, I didn't have 39 books in the row. What was I to do? And then we are going to count over 39 books if you have a shelf that long. Okay? If not, just take the last one. 
I landed on The Unnamed by Joshua Ferris, um, which is Joshua Ferris's second novel after Then We Came to the End, uh, and before his most recent novel, um, which just came out uh, last year. And I know exactly why I have this book and exactly what I thought of it. Uh, so it was assigned to me by the LA Times for a book review. And I absolutely loved this book. It is a really bizarre story. So it's about a guy who can't stop walking. He's got some strange disease that causes him just to, he has to keep moving constantly. So there's a little Forrest Gump. It's sort of like keep the bus walking. in speed, but it's his body. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it's, it's hard to tell if it's a, um, a psychological problem or if it is a physical problem if it's you know like they can chain him to a wall and he'll dig into his body to try to get off of the chains hmm. um and so i reviewed it in the los angeles times and i absolutely loved it and i'll tell you exactly what i said about it um i said the unnamed is an accomplished and daring work by a writer just not realizing what he is capable of creating where when they where then we came to the end chewed and gnawed at corporate life the unnamed lays bare the fabric of families the lengths people will go for the ones they love and the lack of value we place on the simple ability to pause to stop and to reconsider all the steps we've made hey it's tucker the producer of this podcast you know i gotta jump in for just a second to say you know i really got to agree with julia on this one just saying Todd used the numbers to find a book he previously reviewed. Well, isn't that special? It's also a deeply unsettling book about the lengths you'll go to for love and, you know, at what point marriage fails in the face of madness and illness and all of those things. Um, not everyone felt as strongly about the book as I did. Um, some people really wanted it to be Then We Came to the End 2. And if you read Then We Came to the End, the book was written in the Wee Voice. It, it was about corporate culture and advertising agency and all the strange people that are in it. Um, and this is a very dark, personal, sad book. Um, but, you know, I I loved it. And I'm a huge Joshua Ferris fan. So I might just... It's just I, the name sound, His name sounds familiar, but I don't, I don't think I've heard of either one of these books so is there something else that he's written or that he's known for or am i just confused the, the one that you would know him best else. for is um then we came to the end that was up for the national book award um, when it came out okay and his most recent book um is uh to rise again at a decent hour um which i also reviewed um in the las vegas weekly this year um but i think he's he's a smart and interesting writer um he actually came from the MFA program at UC Irvine. So we have some friends in common. Um, he was in school about the time all of us were. Cool. Uh, but, you know, uh, he also writes a lot of short stories that are in The New Yorker and places like that. Just a really smart, interesting, funny uh, writer. To Rise Again in a Decent Hour is about a, um, a dentist whose online identity, um, someone basically hacks his online life and starts posting weird, horrible shit about him uh, in his voice. Um, and he has to track it down. It's, you know, it ends up being this sort of like, small international conspiracy thing. But just a weird, funny, strange, uncomfortable book about our online lives. Um, and so, you know, I 
if you're not a fan of Joshua Ferris, you should become one. Those of you in Listenerville, um, but start with then we came to the end. That's a really it's a such a strange, uncomfortable, awkward, great book. Particularly if you're about to go into the workforce and you think that the people you're going to work with are great, they're not. Usually, the people <laughs> that you work with are crazy. Um, I don't know if either of you guys have ever experienced this, but I've worked with people before and they're just not they're just not sane. They end up doing things that make you question their sanity. Well, I will say. I know we have a lot of young listeners in high school and college and maybe just coming out of college. And I have to say that the most important thing about any job is your coworkers and your boss. And if you smell crazy or like really high stress or anything like that, do not work there. I don't care if it's your dream job Um, because nothing can ruin a job faster than other people. Right. I I was at uh, I was at this event yesterday with um, these other authors, and this one other author was talking about how he ended up leaving his job in TV news, where he'd worked to much success early on in his life, and he just one day he went to the set and was about to open the door to go onto the set for his job in TV news, and just realized I just can't do it. I can't do it anymore, and just turned around and left, and never went back. Wow. Yeah. Sick. Just can't. Just can't do it. That's a good way to go. (laughs) <laughs> if you're gonna burn a bridge really burn yeah. the fucker down <laughs> kick something over in your way that's out. pretty funny <laughs> steal something, steal something. Also. Yeah, take all take all the white out <laughs> that was shitty but do you remember when the i think it was the the clinton white house took all the w's off of all the keyboards when yes. George Bush came. <laughs> what? So they did? Yeah, they left like yeah. all these pranks yeah. behind. That's kind of shitty. I remember hearing about wow. that and being like, come on, guys, that sucks. Wow. kind of funny at the same yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> Probably cost the nation billions. Though, Pretty. A little bit. New yeah. um, keyboards. All right, well, I landed on a book by Saul Bellow, who is Ooh. an amazing writer. I've only read two of his books this one, Henderson the Rain King, oh, a good book. and another one called Seize the Day. And. Seize the Day, I loved. Uh, I think that's probably one of his most famous books. I don't know. I mean, he, he wrote a lot. But Seize the Day is, um, it's short and sweet and not sweet. I mean, I mean it's good that it's short, which I like short books. Uh, what am I trying to say? I have no it's, idea what you're trying to say. <laughs> I did, well, I said short and sweet, but it's really dark and not super happy. So <laughs> that made it sound like it was an uplifting book. It's not an uplifting book, but it's good. Um it's, it's, I, uh, anyway, this one I don't really remember that much about because I read it when I was 14. And the reason I bought it, I've talked about on this show um, being a uh, morose teen idol and listening to Counting Crows lyrics. And uh, there is a Counting Crows song called The Rain King. And when I was 14, I discovered that it was called The Rain King because of this book. There's actually a line in the song where it says something like Henderson is waiting for the sun. Mm-hmm. And so I found out that it was based on this book, so I went out and bought it, um, hoping to, like, you know, read some great work of literature that also connected with my favorite album at the time. It really doesn't... I I don't remember loving it. Um, It's like a guy, he's a millionaire, and he goes to Africa, and it sort of has, like, this midlife crisis, and then he becomes the rain king among this African tribe. I should probably reread it. I don't know. You've read it more recently, Todd? No, I read it it in college. In, in, oh, okay. in my mind, it's um, what would have happened if 
things fall apart were narrated from the white man's perspective. <laughs> right, but I, I, it's more like, yeah, I mean, I don't. Is it is it like magical? Does he? No, it's it's realistic, right? He doesn't actually create rain. He doesn't. Beca- it's not like a fable. No, I, it's, I, don't, it's a, I don't remember he, that much about it. He's on a journey of. He's looking for spirituality as well. And then there's something about a lion. <laughs> yeah, there's a lion on the cover. Oh, okay, good. Re- <laughs> okay, uh, Todd, have you read it or have you looked at it? Uh, no, I read it. I read it in college. I we I took it. I remember very specifically. We, I had a class where it was like Saul Bellow, Philip Roth, and every other Jewish writer, um, and we read them. We read them all. In fact, someone, um, a, a very nice person on the internet, wrote an article on Plowshares about. Um, crime fiction where they talked about sort of the lineage of gangsters in crime fiction and so they talked a bit about um my last book and they brought up a Saul Bellow book that like my book is the lineage from and I was like oh Hmm. I have never read that book but I should read that book um so it arrived and it's like 700 pages so I was like yeah I'll probably read that book in 2020 that sounds good Yeah, I don't really remember uh, much of uh, Rain King other than that I, well, I read it. Well, I'll just take this as an opportunity to recommend Seize the Day then, because that's an amazing book, and it should only take you, like, a day to read. Um, and it, I, 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 in my mind, Seize the Day sort of goes along with the moviegoer and Revolutionary Road, in that sort of, like, depressed, uh, you know, discovering the misery of, of, of middle-class work life. Um and you know, being stuck at your office job in New York City, for some reason, it, it's in. The, I don't really remember the story of Seize the Day, but that's I remember it being great, and it's sort of in that same vibe. Uh, you know, like most most of those novels, like the Philip Roth style novels, mm-hmm. it's not not super uplifting. But um, and Josh Ferris's novel really, really is also good. about that corporate life and the ruin great. of it. So if you get great. so yeah. kids, if you're listening right now and you're wondering what do you want to do with your lives, read these uplifting books about corporate life that make you apparently want to kill yourself or walk constantly. Right. Well, and uh, you guys know where a lot of corporate life happens, New York City, which brings mm-hmm. us to my selection, which is yeah. a literary anthology called Writing New York, oh. um, which Ooh. is really good, and it is the reason I bought it is other than the fact that I love New York more than any place in the world, um, is that it was edited by Philip Lopate, who was one of our Bennington gurus, and I went through a period where I bought every book he had ever written or (laughs) anthologized. And he's an amazing, uh, amazing anthologist. His most famous book, really, is um, The Art of the Personal Mm -hmm. Essay, which... Do you guys have that book? Yes. I don't think I've ever yeah, read it. It's incredible. I don't have it, no. Oh, it's so good. Uh, and he just really curates uh, really well. It's one of his big skills. So I bought this book, and what's really beautiful about it is it's a pretty equal mix between fiction and nonfiction, and then a further equal mix between things that you know have to be in there and then things that you've never heard of. Um, and then they're arranged chronologically throughout New York's history. So you're reading this beautiful wow. literary hmm you know, expression of the city. And he's an incredible writer himself, so he's really picking Mm -hmm. things for their literary quality rather than trying to express the whole history of New York, which one anthology could not do. But, you know, here, I'll read a little uh, something from the intro. To look at the literature chronologically, as we have done here, is to see how early New York's patterns set in. From the start, the place was fast, boisterous, crowded, dirty, secular, and on the make. 
It began as a cosmopolitan international port, a walking city with a vital street life and a housing shortage, and stayed that way. The more the metropolis grew, the more it attracted writers. Yet no matter how independent a writer might be, New York has always had a way of seeming stronger, of bending the individual will to its designs and obsessions. Hmm. So, it's great, great anthology, and... Probably one of the first bookshelf roulettes that, A, I haven't touched in a really long time, and B, I will probably... This is going to get upgraded to the uh, bedside table. So I have not nice. read some of these in so long, and it's really good. You know you know what so, I think yeah. we need to do also is, um, at some point, I think we need to go through every single book we bought obsessively while we were graduate students and see if we actually like them. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I remember there was a, that whole period of time where everyone was like you have to read this and so we bought all those books and we had those discussions and I think at the time because we were drunk and cold we liked more of them than we thought we did I don't know if that, that maybe isn't I've a good a use of purges. time <laughs> well I what mean, I ended up doing what's what's it, what all the books that I bought were short story collections uh, like that's what I yeah. realized like because I was writing short stories and so many of our teachers were short story writers so I would end up buying everybody's collection that you know had ever taught at Bennington, and then everyone kept recommending short story collections, and I kind of regret that because now my bookshelf is full of things that like I don't know I I, I, I it's hard to recommend short story collections to people. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like most mm -hmm. people don't want to read short stories, so you kind of have to. It's like a certain type of reader right. that wants to read a whole collection, and so like whenever I'm when people ask me for a book recommendation, I'm always like, well, and I'm looking at my bookshelf and I'm like, God, there's a lot of short stories here. Let me try and find a novel that you will like, you know, cause most people want an extended experience, like an extended See, story. That's so interesting because I feel very differently. And I think it's just a genre thing. I think mm -hmm. the, you know, 50 or 60 books that I acquired as a result of Bennington, because I study nonfiction are like the bedrock of my recommendations mm. because That's most cool. people who love novels would love creative nonfiction, but haven't read a lot of it. So mm -hmm. it's so easy to say, you know, like I'm, I'm looking at it right now, like all this Joan Didion, all this George mm. Orwell, you know, all of these really interesting essays. You guys remember Tom Lynch who gave that amazing speech. Oh when God. We yeah. The undertaker. Yeah. Tom recommended those books so God, many times all so. about him i never that read his book i need best. to read it oh my god it's fantastic it's i should have read that jesus christ that would that would have been a helpful book for me to read huh yeah. uh hey just but in general well in, in a book of mine you haven't read yet there's a big thing about a cemetery <laughs> <laughs> uh, excuse me. I actually did read it. Oh, thank you. Uh, but I thought you meant like for teaching or but, something. But just but, in general, uh, also. Yeah. Hey guys, it's you know what one thing yeah. we all need to read though, and I I think we probably missed it, is the poetry of Tucker Ives Twitter. Oh shit. <gasps> oh boy, Tucker Ives, our producer. Yeah, oh, no. I uh, I went ahead just now and uh, and pulled up his poetry. Are you ready? Tucker tweets a lot. Yeah. This is going to be good. This is Broken Heart by Tucker Ives. Oh, poor Tucker. Either like snow or being alive. <gasps> Award for missing plane coverage. Were you watching it live? Was it a really beautiful message? Expert, don't blame Mother Nature. Looks wow. like Jesus drives a Ford. <laughs> but do you live in the future? Places this morning, 
in Hartford. Ah, uh, okay. That happened. Another <laughs> mph piece about seizures. If those car costumes are banned on the good old team from Harlem, it's getting literally obliterated. Work email may have had a problem. Broken Heart by Tucker Ives. Wow. That one's actually really nice. There's a lot of weather. Yeah. yeah I mean, you get a sense of place. Hartford. Yeah. yeah. Snow. Hmm. Wow. I, Tucker, what an artist. I wonder if, if he'd be willing to to read it you know, now that I've done it. You know, I wonder if, if he <laughs> would. No, I think I'm good. But I've, it's now, or he'll just put peeing sound yeah, over us. But it's now lost to time. <laughs> All right, stick around, and we'll come back after an arbitrary break when we discuss Chris Offit. Welcome back, everybody, to Literary Disco. We are now going to turn to Chris Offutt. Offutt. O-F-F-U-T-T. I'm going to pronounce it differently every time I say it. Um, He's actually French. It's Offutt. Offutt. Le foot. Offutt is a a southern writer uh, from Kentucky, and his first short story collection came out in 1992. It's called Kentucky Straight. And uh, in preparation for today, we read two stories from that collection. It's a great collection overall, I'll just say. Uh, but the stories we read to discuss today are Blue Lick and The Leaving One. Um, he then followed that up with a memoir about uh, the birth of his son called The Same River Twice, um, which I have not read. And he then put out another short story collection called Out of the Woods, which I read, which is great, and it sort of follows up on a lot of the same themes from Kentucky Straight. Um, he's published the novel The Good Brother, um, and then he recently wrote this essay for New York Times Magazine talking about his father, who it turns out was a pornographer. His father wrote uh, literary pornography. Uh, how, what is the right term for this? Uh, erotica? Erotica, yes. Erotica, yes. right. So it's basically you know, novels or, uh, yeah, they're all novels um, that are, you know, primarily for those adult bookstores that used to exist. Are there, those things still around? I remember seeing them when I was younger. They used to, I feel like... There used to be ones all over LA. There was one called, like, right. Book Circus. And I remember wandering in there. It was down the street from where I lived in Sherman Oaks because they had a big magazine section. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I can get Three Penny Review here. And I'm standing there reading, and I'm like, awful lot of guys in here. Oh, people are jerking off in the back. Well, I'm going to go ahead and leave now. Um, Yeah, so it's a really interesting essay. Um, He, his father did it for his entire life. And um, the essay, the the sort of present story is that his father dies. And so Chris goes back and collects all of his father's work, which it turns out there's just thousands and thousands of pages of unpublished work and um you know and and published books that he has and he has to clean out his father's office his father is kind of like a hoarder of pornography and his own work it's really weird and it it just he ends up taking all these boxes from his father's home back to his house to sort of go through them for months and um and and it gives him a chance to reflect on his relationship with his father a little bit but mostly about his father's relationship to what he was writing um it's a, it's a strange essay. It kind of didn't go where I expected it to. Um, but do you guys want to talk about the essay or do you want to talk about the short stories first? Let's talk about the essay first because I think the essay okay. 
has some interesting clues into what he was writing about in those short stories in a way. I agree. Um, yeah, that's why I picked, um, I picked out these two stories because they had some, some father-son moments in them that I thought might be yeah. um, um, reflective of this essay. I mean, there, there's a lot... I, I loved this essay, actually, about his father, the pornographer, because it... Well, there's two things that I loved about it. Just the general everything about it part. But yeah. also... And I said this on, on Facebook or Twitter or something after I read it. Um, which is that it's it's whether or not you end up loving the essay as as a piece of general nonfiction, it's a great example of what I think we're losing somewhat in the internet culture of nonfiction specifically, which is a piece that he experienced and thought about and wrote about over the course of a long period of time. Right. So we are inundated, I think fairly regularly online with not essays but response pieces someone saying oh i'm aggrieved about this here's four thousand words about what i'm aggrieved about they write it one day they publish it the next day and it doesn't have any of the um extra added incentive of time wow that's to help a really you good point i never thought about that feel. yeah that's a really good point and it's something that i've been noticing more and more and more lately about sort of exper experiential nonfiction, where this bad thing happened to me, here's my 4,000 words about it. But this, you know, if you go to your, to go clean out, as we all will have to do, I regret to inform the world, um, and as, as I've had to do already, you go clean out a dead parent's stuff, you find out a lot of weird shit about them, you know? Right. Um, and... You don't need to process that information if you're a writer and turn it into a, a piece of nonfiction that next morning. You know, sit in it, right. live with it a little bit, and then try to process it and write it. And that's what I loved about this is that, you know, his father dies in um, his father died in 2013, um, and so you know it's been two years or so, or a year and a half at least, until he started to write this, and. It shows because it's he's still evolving in his feelings about his father and what it means to him. And I, I just think that's such an important part of of essay writing and nonfiction writing that I hope we see a resurgence of and not just I'm pissed, here's my response. Yeah, How about okay. I'm pissed and I'm gonna wait six months and give you my response because it's gonna it's going to contain something larger. Well, and not All just right. anger but, you know, grief. I mean I thought mm -hmm. it was interesting how little grief is in this essay mm -hmm. and uh i mean i think todd there will always be room for that and there will always basically the people who make room for time before publishing will will come out on top i mean like the best example of this in recent phenomenon is wild by cheryl mm -hmm. Strait. you know people were really nervous that it was going to be something more like you're describing an instantaneous thing but it you know it was what like 25 years after right. she'd had these experiences Right. So, you know, it's in this Chris Offit essay, it really allows, <laughs> this is such a weird statement, but it really allows it to be about the porn and gives, mm -hmm. gives the porn right. room to breathe <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, gets down in the details of what he was writing and his incredible cataloging of what he was doing. I mean, there's this really right. good section about how, Basically, he had to come up with so many different descriptions of the same thing that he developed what sounded like a really intense 
system where oh, filing system. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, filing system. It's I'm looking so for good. it because it's so funny. Um, yeah, it's where he basically um, made widgets out of porn books. Like he'd have all these different yeah. descriptions, and he'd go down the line and, <laughs> and drop. Here, them I got in. it right here. He created batches in advance, phrases, sentences, descriptions, and entire scenes on hundreds of pages organized in three-ring binders. Tabbed index dividers separated the sections into topics. 80% of the notebooks described sexual aspects of women. The longest section focused on their bosoms. Another binder listed descriptions of individual actions, separated by labeling tabs that included mouth, tongue, face, legs, kiss, the heading of orgasm had subdivisions of before, during, and after. The thickest notebook was designed strictly for BDSM novels with a list of 150 synonyms for pain. <laughs> but it's amazing. So, so crazy. <laughs> yeah. But you're right. You know, I mean, if this I, had been more about how sad he was, you know, and how painful this experience was. Right. I don't know. It would be a very different essay. And it's so funny. I mean, that section was hilarious. Um, well, there there is one section that that is the sort of more emotional one, um, which is when he talks about, um, you know, why they loved their father when they were kids, and why he became this thing that they ignored um, and were embarrassed by, basically when they became older. Um, hold on one sec here. Where is it? So this is after he finds after he goes to the. Um, after he receives a letter from his father saying, you are the person who's going to, you know, be the proctor of all this stuff. He says, I immediately wrote to my siblings, but they had no interest, long weary of our father's secret and his porn. When we were young, dad played board games with us, taught us poker, hearts, and spades. He had a vast capacity to make us laugh. We adored him and begged him to play games after supper. He made our evenings fun. But as we got older and more mature, dad remained the same. The humor slipped away from his oft-repeated gags. His deliberate naughtiness, when a dice roll came up six, he'd call it sex, evolved to outright sexual comments that produced a strained silence instead of laughter. Um, and it goes on, One by one we did the worst thing possible. We ignored him. I believe this hurt him deeply in a way he didn't fully comprehend, and we certainly could not fathom. In turn, he ignored us. Yeah, you definitely get the sense that the relationship was pretty distant near the end there. Um, yeah. And that's partly why reading, going through his his father's writing, even though it's pornography, becomes becomes a way for. I mean, he says it explicitly. He says this is my efforts were a way of interacting with his mind. And it's just such an interesting mm -hmm. thing. Like, yeah, if your dad had that much material, um, how could you? It's you know you couldn't look away. You'd have to go through it all and read it all, even if it's bondage porn which i can't it's such a weird way to you know i mean because because i feel like everybody has that like you, you, you have this horrible idea that yeah you have to go through your dead parents stuff and then they might have porn that they bought and consumed right like that would be horrible enough but what if it's porn right. that they wrote like that is crazy and right. so much of it um and the weirdest part is that not only was his did his father have this professional fiction writing career but then he also had a secret comic that he wrote right all these comic adventures and he drew but he kept it a secret and they were also pornographic um and science fictiony very strange yeah it's a it's a really it's kind of i mean like the whole world is is sort of unfathomable to me and, and in a way it's 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 also 
nostal like this there's a nostalgia to this piece because you know that kind of pornography doesn't need to exist anymore because of the internet like there doesn't need to be a mass market paperback world i mean i guess 50 shades of gray was the you know this moment where pornographic book actually became hugely popular again but in general the idea you know he, he talks about it um about how once vhs came around this whole world sort of died so in a weird way this essay reminded me of like boogie nights you know and that it becomes this like mm-hmm. nostalgic look back on this weird corner of american culture that was underground but always there and everyone kind of knows it existed or exists and um i was fascinated by it i can't imagine cranking out i mean i can't imagine cranking out books like all the time anyway but cranking out these type of books constantly like and not getting paid that much like sounds like he was only getting a couple hundred right. bucks a book like what and he made a yeah. living doing this so he was writing how many books a year does he say at one point it's insane well he would he'd write a book like in a couple yeah. weeks wasn't there he an said, example of him writing a book in three yeah. days he said uninterrupted he could write a book in three days yeah i mean that's the part uh, that blew but, my mind which also tells you know tells you that he's crazy right. also yeah. i mean if you write a book in three days you're crazy you're Stephen King, high on cocaine, writing. But do you? But you also have this freedom of knowing that, like, what two people are going to be reading. <laughs> I mean, your your audience is small, but they're also never going to talk about it or be reviewed. Like, you're 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 writing right. for people. To, you know what do they call it? Like a left-handed book at one point. Yeah. Like it's basically you're writing <laughs> right. masturbation material, right? So it's like this idea right. that somebody's only reading it for that purpose is kind of freeing creatively in a weird way. I can imagine like and that's why the idea that, that he was writing science fiction themed pornography is fascinating to me. Like what kind of crazy mm. world and you're able to just kind of let your brain wander and go with your first draft. You know, it's not like you have to rewrite it because no one's really caring about the quality. It's such a, a strange exercise for for a writer. Um, well, and you know, erotic fiction's still big, but it's not written by men. Um, you know, there's, there's in the romance realm, erotica is, is still huge. Well, so, what separates romance novels from erotic fiction? Like, aren't romance novels pretty explicit too? Like some of them, but you know, there's categories. So, right. for instance, there each publisher will, in their individual categories, may say, okay you can't have anal sex in this book or no pink parts you know we don't want to see anything basically Mm -hmm. um so down the line it's so like harlequin books has you know 85 different divisions all based on the level of um you know filth filth yeah for the most part (laughs) Um, so it's still, it's still big business, but it's not, it's not dudes writing it as much anymore, but you know, people, and it's not dudes reading it either, right? It's mostly women that read. Right. Now it is. Yeah. I don't, I mean, but that was before. Well, one thing. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I was, I was. Uh, Well, uh, one point that I thought was really fascinating and this is related to my interest in another book which I've mentioned Gnome de Plume by Carmela Chiraru that I've mentioned before on on the podcast Um, he says early on he wrote under 17 different pseudonyms but his (laughs) father said that he has one pseudonym and that's the guy who writes the porn and that that guy has 16 pseudonyms which I just thought was such a fascinating idea 
Yeah, um, it's really that weird. He has an alter ego that's sort of the master of this, you know, like the the Sauron of this situation or whatever. <laughs> right. And then the all seeing dick eye. Yeah. All the other ones are. Please, we all know that Sauron is does not look like a male part. Let's put it no, that way. No, um, so you know, yeah, I just thought that was so interesting. It's like that he really had this twin self that really kind of took over and, you know, had all its little side projects. But I then there's that. that there's that weird part um, towards the end of the essay where he says, if yes. my father was, uh, that his father thought that being writing porn had stopped him from being a serial killer. So it says, my father often told me that if not for pornography, he'd have become a serial killer. On two occasions, he described the same story. One night in college, he resolved to kill a woman, any woman. He carried a butcher knife beneath his coat and stalked the campus, seeking a target. It rained all night, and the only person walking around was him. He went home, soaked, miserable and alone, regretting the action. He began drawing a comic about stalking a woman. Oh. I mean, that's... That is very strange. That's deeply unsettling. Well, but, but, but no, it's unsettling, but then it's interesting that... That then Chris Offit takes that away from him by right. saying, yeah, that saying here it goes on to say the idea that porn prevented him from killing women was a self-serving delusion that justified his impulse to write and draw portrayals of torture. He needed to believe in a greater purpose to continue his lifelong project. Admitting that he liked it was too much for him to bear. So it's a really weird point that that Chris mm-hmm. Offit is making. He's sort of taking like because. Yeah, that his father would admit that I was going to be a serial killer if it weren't for this pornography. But then the Chris Offit takes that away from him and says, no, you were just a dirty old man who had this weird compulsion and this desire to write pornography. And that that, that was weird enough in itself. It, it wasn't... That's a strange um, way of thinking about it. But I yeah. I wonder if... Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard... I mean, I didn't know his father. But like, both of them are sort of unsettling in their own way. But I, that's sort of getting me down this path of like, this weird, you know, and, and I've been going through this in my own creative life, like w- figuring out what your taste is. Like, okay, we all want to be writing a certain type of thing, right? But then what you actually write, like, and the fact that those two can be completely different things is very strange, you know? Like, you yeah. can mm-hmm. want to be this great literary fiction writer, but the truth is you are really good at writing erotic fiction, and that becomes... Who you, and it seems like for his father, he... W- actually really loved erotic fiction and so compulsively wrote it like it just came out of him it was it was something mm-hmm. he had to write and that's fascinating to me that that somebody could be that kind of, kind of pure in a weird way like that it fits their personality it fits their own interests and then they could write something so clearly trashy or like you know not intended to be i don't know it's just uh but yeah. the the other side though is i, I mean yeah he Chris Offit is is making this this diagnosis of his father, right? So he's saying, I don't believe that is true. But there's, you know, most people who have the fantasy of killing someone or find sexual arousal from the fantasy of killing and torturing someone don't, in fact, go out and kill and torture someone. Right. That it remains their thing that they fantasize about. It doesn't make that person any less sociopathic (laughs) you know so i think it's this weird line of okay so 
porn saved him from doing it. But he still was this guy who really enjoyed this idea of torturing women and stalking all and stuff. I mean, it. Who yeah. knows what? He yeah, really but thought, you can't. Honestly. You can't judge somebody for their thoughts, right? I mean, no, like, or their private fantasies. As long as he never hurt anybody his entire life, right. like, what do we care, right? But here's. Here's the thing. I think what the analysis that's missing there is what does that mean about the porn? You know what I mean? Right. It's like th- that level of violent desire, you know, and he's writing these pornographic situations. I don't know. There's, I'm, I'm not having a complete thought, but that was the piece of the essay that I thought was the strangest. So it should have had a much more major you know, impact and it's just kind of tossed in at the end. And that's well, so I think that this is a very dense essay. Like I think this essay is not Yeah. Like I kinda wish it was longer. I wish it was Oh, hold almost, on. Yeah, I just like saw something book. important. Hold on. This article is adapted from a forthcoming memoir about Good. his father's fifty year career. <laughs> Good. That's Good at the bottom time of the article. To jump in on that yeah, one. I, I just scrolled to the bottom and there it was. So we're gonna get more. Good, because I feel like this it's it's not we're just scratching the surface with this thing. Yeah. And and oh, I'm yeah. so fascinated by the subject. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Okay, okay. well then we'll, we'll pick it back up when oh, we read the book. Oh my god, wow. Maybe we shouldn't have talked about just this essay on the show. <laughs> But but here's a great example of just even what I was saying before is he has turned this thought into something larger. He, he has taken the time even to expand on this one thing mm-hmm. and is making it a, a bigger thing. That that pleases me so yeah. much. Good. So here's something, though, interesting also about Chris O'Foot is that you know he also wrote uh, True Blood. So he was, uh, I think he was really? a staff writer on True Blood season one. So he's written sci-fi porn. Yeah, yeah. So basically. He, he has also written vampire porn. So that's interesting. He, wow. His, he says at one point in um, in the, the essay that my dad wrote. Um, there's a whole list. Wait, where is it? Uh, wow. He wrote pirate porn, ghost porn, science fiction porn, vampire porn, historical porn, time travel porn, secret agent porn, thriller porn, zombie porn, and Atlantis porn. True Blood is at least ghost porn. Vampire porn, historical porn, and time travel porn. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he was wow. doing the same exact thing, you know. In a, in a that con- must be a part of the memoir. In an entirely different medium, of course, because you look at. I mean, True Blood is based on sort of uh, on those books, obviously that Charlene Harris wrote. But that show, you know, when it first came out, people were stunned, you know, about all the stuff that was happening in that show. Yeah. So you know, there's there is that clear line which i think is you know, it's pretty interesting and also violent sex and killing yeah, and absolutely at all at one time you know that's so interesting that i can't wait really for this memoir yeah um i know we're about to talk about the story so i just want to make a quick recommendation because i just started listening to the long form podcast which i cannot believe i have not listened to um do you guys listen to it no oh my god <laughs> It's a, another podcast. I'm just like our. Wait, there are other are podcasts like, besides ours. I, yeah, yeah, I thought it was it? us there's and Mark Marin. Okay. I didn't know there was. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, there's others, but long form. It's about long form journalism mm-hmm. and nonfiction, and it's just conversations with, you know, current big name long form writers. But it's really good, and the, I was just listening to this one with a. Uh, Evan Wright, who wrote uh, Generation Kill. Love and that book. He God, I love that talks, book. 
and he uh, wrote porn, and he talks mm-hmm. about that. And then since he was since he was doing that, um, he is the person that David Foster Wallace hung out with to write the essay "Big Red Sun." So. Huh. It's so it's a great podcast episode. It's really interesting and it's really applicable to this episode. So yeah, check out the long form podcast and it's episode sixty seven of theirs. So it's really good. Generation Kill right. is a great book and a great series. I loved that T V series. The it was like six episodes on HBO. Yeah. Loved yeah. it. Awesome. And in fact, here's your true blood connection. The guy who plays Eric the Vampire was in Generation Kill, the T V series. Wow. Yeah. What's his, the really tall, blonde, good-looking guy? What's his name? Yeah. Yeah. My old body. Eric, Eric Northman. The Eric vampire. Northman, yes. The vampire, <laughs> the vampire Eric Northman. Uh, yes, I know that. Okay. <laughs> so. All right. Turning to some short stories that have nothing to do with vampires. Um, the Leaving One is a story uh, about a boy who befriends a, a hermit in the woods a wild man in the woods um what'd you guys think i i liked both of the stories that we read and i read them obviously after i read this essay um but it's also really indicative both stories are very are hugely voice driven and you can see his influence uh, from the southern writers that he surely was reading as a younger man these stories are 25 years old right yep um and I was reminded a lot of Brees DJ Pancake. Um, Me too. I was reminded a lot of Daniel Woodrell, who is a contemporary of his, so maybe not um, you know, not an influence. But um, and then obviously you know, it reminded, Faulkner and Faulkner. Right? <laughs> I mean, when you get to Blue um, Lick, the other story, it's I mean, it could be a chapter from a Faulkner novel. You know, the the sort of yeah. I um, mean, it's really both stories are really heavy in the Southern tradition. Um, and I was reminded in both stories of a story that we read, the title of which I cannot recall, when we did Best American Short Stories, where we were like, this is a story that is just like every other great story we've ever read, but not quite good enough, about a guy on a farm, and mm-hmm. they kill the dog, and I don't remember who wrote it. No, they're killing it about, the cat. But... That's the one where they're killing the cats, right? Yeah, the, killing the, the kid cats, is, yeah. Is, ah, we like that story. We, we yeah, all... but... But it, but then you see sort of the similarity to other things. Right. But at any rate, right. um, I really liked it. And I was surprised because it was so voicey compared to this essay, which is yeah. written in a very clean, um, understated way that really hides the author. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas that, I mean, you, you're aware you're reading a short story, you know? Um, yeah. mm-hmm. I think that's just evolution of a writer. You know, it's been 25 years since you wrote that thing. Yeah, I was, it was weird. I had this weird reaction that I think is similar to Todd's where I was like, I I read the essay first and then I regretted that once I read the stories because instead of seeing the writer revealed in the essay, Mm -hmm. it was kind of watching a writer obscure himself with his writerly devices. And it was just a bizarre experience. I liked the stories. But it was so strange to go in that direction, especially when it's like, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, like Southern tradition, like wise little kids, that whole thing. Right. And then we and now we know that the material of his life is so fascinating 
that mm-hmm. I just feel like, you know, man, you didn't need this. All you had to do was write about your dad, you know? But, but he is sort of, that's the thing is, so he runs into this strange hermit man in the woods who ends up being his grandfather who teaches him very odd life lessons in the process. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, I, I don't, as we've talked about a lot, you know, I don't think you need to go find out what the truth is of every fictional story that a writer is writing. He's just making shit up. But once you then know the truth, and of course he's written memoirs before, you start to pull those things out a little bit. And, mm-hmm. you know, you see this sort of disconnected backwoods experience that he had in Kentucky and this crazy old man living out in the woods. And it's not difficult to make the parallel to the crazy man living in his office writing vampire porn, yep. who's just right. as unknowable, yeah. you know? That right, is right. just as ends up being just as shunned by the family. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very strange experience to well, see that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely recommend that you guys read the rest of the collection because it's, it's, it's a really interesting collection. And, and Out of the Woods is the same way in that he, he clearly has a, a love for Kentucky and for the South mm-hmm. and for the wilderness and the people, the sort of, you know, down on their luck hillbillies and rednecks and, um, you know, the poor people and... Uh, you know, he, he, he clearly has an affection and an understanding of those people, but he also mm-hmm. has a great, uh, he doesn't identify with them completely. Like there's obviously a, a learned man writing these stories and the, the, the stories kind of all operate on this tension between, uh, like education and, um, worldliness versus local knowledge and experiential right. knowledge, you know, like even in the, in the, in um, in Blue Lick, it's made explicit by this. It's the the narrator is a kid. I'm I'm not sure how old he was. Hey, probably like eight or nine. A kid who's being tested by a woman from some sort of government agency, Vista. Who you know, mm-hmm. they're clearly it's some sort of poverty outreach program that's made it to this kid's home, and it's just a mate like you know the tension between her wanting to save this kid from what is clearly an abusive, awful family situation, and then us being with the narrator who sees this little brother is his brother and his father is his father and his situation is kind of great for him or you know he thinks it's fun and wonderful and you know all these stories that he's recounting that you're like oh god this is an awful you know like mm-hmm. it was reminded of uh, dorothy allison's book too bastard out of carolina oh yeah. Remember that? yeah you know where you're just getting a glimpse into a horrible world but from a kid's eyes where the kid can't see it for what it is um and and i i i think that um Offit interests me because he ha- he seems to have a love-hate relationship. Essentially, like, all of his stories sort of are, are about this tension between judging these people and loving them, you know, and like, right. like understanding them and like, yeah, you know all the mushrooms in the woods and you know when a deer is coming. You have this like great knowledge of the world when you are those kinds of hillbilly people and you're living in the backwoods, but then you also can't read and write and you also beat your wives and there's also a lot of horrible things going on there and I feel like Offit is constantly not sure how he feels about that. He loves it and he also hates it and his stories always have that tension in a really good way, um, in a way that I think, you know, I mean, Faulkner obviously dealt with a lot of this too, and a lot of Southern writers do, but um, he doesn't feel settled to me. Like, he feels really sort of, un- and, and his stories kind of go back and forth. I mean, some of the stories really celebrate the woodsy folkloric mm-hmm. knowledge. You know, like, in fact, I feel like the leaning one ends with more of a, like, anti-book knowledge sentiment, and yet 
blue yeah, lake. It's and about it's knowing. Which, it's about understanding the natural world. Right. Whereas, right. Whereas the blue lake um, is about how being saved by the system in a way. Being by saved society by society coming in. Yeah. 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 Society um, coming in and rescuing this kid. Right. And, and that push and pull, I think, is interesting. And I think that's, you know, that we've talked about before, but that's the nexus of that sort of rural short fiction you see and rural yep. novels that you see about the the difference between what we might view as some sort of ignorance for the way the world works versus those folks living in the woods somewhere or in the Ozarks or whatever. That is their life and that is their world and they don't need what right. we have. And they but don't. I, they don't want our target, you know. Yeah, and I. But I feel like Brees, like DJ Pancake, was much more in the world still, and much more mm-hmm. sort of, um, like you didn't feel the judgment as much. Like I, I think Offutt is a little more heavy-handed with his. You know, there, there. It's it's a little more. He's he's more. He's coming at it from a more educated perspective. And, and, and using writerly tricks in a way that I feel like Pancake was just much more sort of in it, you know? Yeah. Um, but there are similarities. Like that that troglodyte story. What is that story? A trilobite mm. where he's using Tril- a fossil. Not troglodyte. Yeah, what is it? <laughs> Tril- trilobite? Troglodyte would be entirely... Trilobite. Trilobite. would be entirely different story. Well, didn't you guys think of that where in The Leaving One? He yes. talks about the st- he's carrying that stone and he's talking about what the stars really are. That I've learned in school mm-hmm. that they're this kind of thing. But... I, I, I feel like um, Offit sort of points, there's more signposts to those moments to be like, this is where the learned person's coming in, and this is where the right. folklore knowledge is, the, the local knowledge, whereas Pancake was much more, I don't know. Um, so in a way, looking back at Offit now that I've read Pancake, I, I'm more judgmental of Offit. I'm more kind of like, eh, he, you're right. I mean, it, it feels younger. It feels like a younger writer, somebody coming out of a yeah. writing program producing these stories. Well, I don't know how young off it was. It was 1992 when that book came out. So, you know, maybe he was 30, you know. So, but he did whereas Bruce C.J. Right. Right. Pancake was dead before he was 30. Right. Um, but I, I, I think also having read this essay, just getting to see what his human sensibility was also influenced the way I read these stories. And that's why, uh, that's why I think you know, sometimes when I'm just as a writer, what I reveal about myself on the internet, if I'm tweeting about soccer or, you know, or Nutella or whatever it is that I'm talking about myself, you know, does that change the way someone then reads my crime novels? You know, oh, we, we don't need to worry about this because Todd's at home eating Nutella on a, on a Thin Mint. You know, that's his real life. Um, you know, where does that fourth wall exist for writers anymore? And, you know, having read the essay first and then the stories, it's hard to fall into the fictive world. It really is. You know, it's interesting, Todd, that you say that because I think you're a good example of, I mean, I don't want to get too complimentary here, but, you know, you're a great writer. Thanks. (laughs) And I feel like I've heard people say to you, and I've certainly had people say to me, once I give them, you know, uh, other resort cities or something like, wow, I didn't know Todd wrote like this. He's so funny in real life, you know, (laughs) it's like they can't conceive of the different levels of humanity that you have. And I think, yeah, any, every tweet you have is having that kind of impact, you know, Mm. of people's judgments of who you are as a person. Yeah. 
I, I wish I had read more of his work. I've read some of his stories before in literary magazines and such when I was reading them more often. And my friend Gina Frangello um, used to publish a great deal of his stuff back in the day and other voices. Um, but it, I, I did not have the same connection to the fiction as I did to that essay because I was just like, just like you said earlier, Julia, well, shit. Right. Just talk about this shit, man. Right. Just talk about but the real world. I'd be interested world. to read that memoir and I think, in between. Yeah, well, he's written know? a couple memoirs, actually. So Yeah. Um, yeah. So, he, yeah, the, yeah, he clearly right. has two modes, right? But like I think he has that's, this that's sort of that... short story tradition that he's working in and then right. the memoir tradition. And maybe he's just a stronger essayist, memoirist. But and then he's also doing TV. I mean, he had, I know he also had a show, and I think we mentioned this before when we talked about him. He developed a show about singer-songwriters in the South. That I don't think it ended up. Well, I'd love to see that, but True Blood sucks, man. God, I hate that show. It was good at first. I loved yeah. the first season of True Blood. No, it wasn't. It was all the first season of True Blood. Okay. Season one of True Blood. No, the great. opening scene of True Blood was one of the worst things I've ever seen. I couldn't even finish the first episode. I hated it. <laughs> oh. I thought it was just. Re- season- yeah. All right. I was addicted <laughs> to the first two seasons of True Blood. And then it, what is it she? She's a psychic fairy person what yeah um, that's correct that is she's an empath or something uh, well it was when she was basically became a fairy that it really derailed <laughs> it was already there just so when you bad. go straight vampire it's no, the okay. real problem with that show is that yeah. she is a horrific actress i could never i just can't take her seriously in anything I, she's one of those people like oh she drives me crazy did I like her in? I when she was her six. In. Was she getting the, the piano? piano? Yeah, was she in the of piano. Course. She was great. Yeah, because <laughs> she didn't speak. Did she? No, not speak she was just so movie? free and out of her head and wonderful. It's an amazing performance. Mm-hmm. It really is. But you know, she's just one of those people that as she got older, she, I just I feel like she, I don't know, something. She got too in her head or something. I I, I can't really watch her and take her seriously. But. Listen, you're concentrating on the wrong thing. It's a show about sexy vampires. Right, right. She is merely the straight man through which we get to meet all these sexy vampires. Yeah, I, right. I guess I, I, and, I have and no every single vampire, vampire story to begin with. So, well, that's your problem. Well, and that's that's a good lead into when we read our sexy vampire book for the first time on the show. We should read a set. What is a good set? Well. We should maybe we should revisit some yeah, Anne Rice. Not. I read Interview with the Vampire, you know, when I was like eleven. I read Interview with the Vampire. Yeah. That was good. But Anne Rice also wrote yeah. erotica. She wrote all of those erotica novels under the pen name Anne Rampling. Well, um, for I, many years. First of all, uh, I recently interviewed Anne Rice, so uh, I could recommend something that we could read. But also, you know, pretending that there's any difference between vampire books and erotica is just a waste of time. Very, yeah, it's very yeah. slim. <laughs> That's the same exact thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so weird to me. I've never quite understood that connection. Well, Stephen Graham Jones explained it to us. Yeah. But I don't remember what he said. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think someone should recommend to us an intentionally not sexy vampire book, and then I will be convinced that the genres can be separated. But yeah, if there, you got that, listeners, send us in your non-sexy vampire. Is there? What would that be like? Like I vampires hanging out and not eating each other? No, because that is basically what Twilight is. Yeah. Those were considered sexy. Uh, yeah, so it's if a anyone just has a good vampire hanging out, doing or like vamp- adventure, yeah. action, uh. adventure for the vampires. Oh, I have a good. I do know a good action adventure vampire book. Uh, it's 
Chris Farnsworth's Blood Oath, which is about an assassin vampire that the president uses. Ooh. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah, there you, you go. Did it. Done. All Blood right. Oath by Chris Farnsworth. <laughs> no, we don't have to read. <laughs> and that'll do it for this week's episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we read Wolf in a White Van by John Darniel. It's actually pronounced John Darniel. Literary Disco is produced, edited, and interrupted every week by Tucker Ives. <laughs> like us the, on the Facebook, poet, follow us Tucker on Twitter. Ives. Oh, the great poet. Let's not forget. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.